0: Hello and what's this week's zone on Salford City Radio. I'm Rob Harkson and we're here talking sports in Salford. Joining, us, joining me on the show, as ever,
1: we've got Jane Sweetman from the Sweetman and Salty podcast. How's your week been, mate? Yeah, terrific week, Rob. I thoroughly enjoyed it. and I can't wait to break down some sports and action with you over the next hour. Yeah, we've got lots and lots uh, to go at uh, this week. We'll start with
0: the, the rugby league and uh, Paul Whiteside. Um, spoke to a Rugby League commentator, didn't he, James?
1: He absolutely did. I think we're going to hear that interview right now.
0: Yep, he spoke to Matt Newsome from the BBC and he told us what his thoughts were about Salford's season.
2: right, well. Last but not least, Salford. Our listeners will be waiting with bated breath to to hear us talk about Salford. I think one of the the nice stories in the close season was was a story about Connor Aspie. We we knew Connor had had come through the the, the ranks at Salford. uh, played really well in a couple of friendlies last season, got his chance and looked like he drifted away from the game but was given a, a trial by, uh, by new coach Richard Marshall. Apparently he's done really well in that trial. He's now That was now funded by Salford Supporters Trust, which is another great story. connor has got himself a, a place in the squad this season. What do you make of him? I've seen him play a couple of times and he looks really, really exciting. I'm, I'm so pleased for him and so pleased with the Supporters Trust story as well. Yeah, I
3: think there was a... Um the Rovers towards the back end of last year. I think he played in that game, didn't he? Yeah. Because uh, I covered I covered that game um, at Warrington, I think it was. And yeah, yeah, I, I was really impressed. And um, clearly, uh, the hooker situation uh, was always going to be um, a little bit of an issue. Um, just in terms of you know, Joey Lussick moving on. So you know, no Joey Lusick uh, that opens up a spot. He's a hooker, isn't he? I'm, I'm getting that yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, he's spot on, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. You know when you're thinking, you're halfway through saying something, you're thinking, I'm sure he's a hooker. No, he but definitely anyway, is. Yeah, yep. So, having him come in um, just makes a massive difference um, to, to the kind of options available, really. Um, I think, having one of the things that is often levelled at, at some of the clubs outside of the Saints and Wigan is that they don't produce Enough of their own players, but when you can say, turn around and say, you know, someone like Conor Aspie who's come through and been given a chance and has taken that chance, then it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's man of them have, isn't it? It just it just gives other players a chance to sort of say, yeah, well, I've got an opportunity now, and, and actually, there's got a couple of options there. I understand that Patton played a little bit of Hooker during the the pre-season uh, as well. He's had he's gone in there before for. Scotland and Bradford, and and Hull KR when he's played there, so there are plenty of options. And obviously Andy Akers as well, so um, loads of depth, loads of depth. Uh, and as you say, someone like Conor Rasby it's just it's like a beacon to the young players who who will be in you know, around that kind of Salford setup and thinking, you know, can I can I get can I get a gig here? And the, that success and the work of the trust and squad builder. It's just a yeah, like you say, a massive, massive boost for clubs.
2: Yeah, it seems this time, I mean, there's been a lot of change itself, Richard Marshall's come in and I was lucky enough to, like yourself to speak to Ian Watson over the over the years in his tenure as coach and I've spoke to Richard Marshall a couple of times, he seemed two different guys with two different sort of personalities really and the, the way they look at things and obviously Richard Marshall will get judged as, as results come in and things like that but he seems to be putting his own stamp on things now and looking at the squad, supporters seem excited by the squad because there does seem quite a bit of depth in the squad there, it's the biggest squad we've had for a while, um, they the outside backs look, look really good. you know. That's Dan Sarge and mm. Joe Burgess has come in. There's a lot of options, as you mentioned, that half-back, the deck pattern, who can play in the half, Danny Addy, two Ilola here's there. Kevin Brown's still there as well. So um, there's a lot of options there. And Richard Marshall's obviously not going to have a lot of friendly matches to, to pick his best 13. No, quite. Uh, during
3: the pre-season, I spoke to Callum Watkins and um, Elijah Taylor and Sam Luckley, who, who I know um, you and yourselves so... at Devil in the detail I've spoken to. So, um, Callum Watkins, I asked him about Richard Marshall, and he just said, Yeah, this, this guy is does everything to a T. He said, There's very much, um, he said he worked with Justin Holbrook at Gold Coast, and that there are a lot of similarities between their methods, uh, that kind of real eye for detail. Elijah Taylor said, um, I can't think what, how, how he described it, but it was something along the lines of, you know, my new shine, you know, he will take things down to the nth degree to make sure that he's, you know, co- covering all bases. And I think that, you know, I, the work he did at Halifax, uh, when he asked the players, look, you know, if you take a power, if you take a, a cut now, we can move on, uh, and we'll, you know, we'll try and build. And if we get some success, you will get all that money back. And, uh, the work he did and taking them as far as he did in terms of uh, the, uh, back then the Super Ace and that kind of thing, just absolutely fantastic. You know, he's a, a, an attention to detail guy, uh, authentic and attention to detail, was what he said. Uh, so, you know, fa- fantastic coach. Uh, I think a really sharp mind. Paul Rowley's still knocking around, for, from what I understand as well, offering his insight. And, you know, again, like you talked about that, that kind of back line. I'm just. It could be devastating, couldn't it? Ken Zio, Callum Watkins, Chris Ninnu, Joe Burgess once he's fit again. Uh, yeah, there's, there's class all over the park, really. And um, it'd be interesting to be for now whether now whether Richard Marshall feels pressure because that's back-to-back major finals now, isn't it? Uh, and he won't have come in to want to kind of keep it on an even keel. He wants to take it on the next level. So, yeah, they've, they've got the personnel. Morgan Skaray's got something to prove as well, out uh, of full back, just uh, yeah, lots of lots to be excited about I think.
2: I think so, that it's, it's a yeah, so I think the, re, the recruitment was really important because we have lost, you know, some some big players. We spoke about them before. Nia Levels has gone. I think Joey Lussick was a big one for me. And just while I mentioned Joey Lussick I think my favourite piece of commentary last season was your commentary from the uh, from the Challenge Cup semi-final of Warrington <laughs> against uh, <laughs> against Salford when Joey Lussick scooted from uh, from halfback to to score that winning try. But uh, yeah, the recruitment has been good, but it needed to be obviously to, to replace these players that have gone.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and not all of it has, has been a kind of drain to other clubs, has it? I mean, if you think of Mark Flanagan, just having that kind of ball playing 13 at the back, um, you lose a player of that of that quality. He's obviously retired now. Chris Wellham has gone part time, hasn't he, with, with Fed Rovers and, you know, started up his pest control business and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, not all of the kind the of drain was, you know, per, what you would perceive to be moving to a, a club. For ambition reasons. I think now you're at a point, Salford, where you can retain players, you can you can add players on your own terms, can't you? And I mean Elijah Taylor who I mentioned there, you know, he's he's a he's a seasoned pro, you know, played in World Cup finals and things like that, you know. Uh, and the likes of he and Roberts bringing them back from, from Huddersfield, that's yet more super league experience. Matthew Costello's a, a classy player who he's been unlucky because the sort of depth, the kind of quality of their sort of starting sort of back, you know, sort of outside backs is so high that it's hard to, hard thing to get a game. So, yeah, Salford, like you say, there was that drain of, of players that have moved on. Some I guess Salford would like to have kept, um, but some of it, some of it was kind of unavoidable really. And um, I think the fact that, you know, that you've been out. Hope would have been able to go out there and attract the level of player that they have, and, and as we were, you, you mentioned, Sam Luck here as well, um, just a, a, he is he could be the the kind of rough diamond. I saw him playing for the Newcastle a couple of times, um, and he just reminded me a bit of Alex Wormsley. He's got that sort of not just in the fact that he's got a massive beard. <laughs> <He's>, uh, <laughs> He's a big presence. Uh, he can play a bit of, uh, in this whole, this whole middles and edges thing that seems to be the kind of modern day parlance. He can play, he play 13 and do your battery man stuff there, or he'll play up front in, in either eight or 10. So, yeah, he's he could be the one that comes through this year that people go, wow, you know, it's like we've already got one sort of Godzilla style prop forward in in the shape of. Um, Alex Wormsley, Sam lucky might give him a run for his money and uh, and he and actually he talking to him and I, and I know you've spoken to him as well with your with the podcast uh, he was really giving up big raps to people like Lee Mossop and Enikahipo and Ryan Lanon just sort of saying that you know these are guys who um, are setting the tone and, and showing him the way to go in terms of training so yeah lo- lots lots to be um Really uh, kind of infused and, and excited about going into this season, I think, for Salford. Yeah,
1: he did, and he has some great rugby knowledge, doesn't he?
0: He does. Matt Newsom's a fantastic commentator. Uh, it was a great interview uh, by Paul, and, and if you obviously want to listen to the whole interview, you can listen to it on the Devil Detail podcast. He speaks about all the teams in in the Super League, uh, and he's he's great. He went great detail with each team, and and, and that's what commentators are they're, they're full of stats and facts. And you know, he, he showed great respect, you know, for coming on our show uh, and on this one to tell us all things
1: uh, what he thought was going to go on with the with Soul for Devils this season absolutely Rob and as you say if you want to hear the full interview make sure you listen to that on the Devil in the Detail podcast. But Rob a question for you. Have you been impressed with Salford's new signings? I have I have James there's a lot
0: of quality in in the squad. Um Richard Marshall's come in he's 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 looked at the squad and he's he's looked around and he's thought how can I improve uh, this this team? This team that's got to a, a grand final and a challenge cup final in the last two years and I think he wanted this team to have great greater depth. In quality, and that's what's happened. He's brought in the likes of Morgan Escalier, who's a who's a fullback. He's a French fullback who's very, very good to replace the departing Nile levels, and and Elijah Taylor from Australia, a uh, big forward who, who's got full of work rate. Who's going to sort of do things in that in that Solford pack? That's going to take us to that next level. Matt Costello from Sir Ellens, an outside back, full of pace, knows where the try line is as well. Uh, he's worked with Richard Marshall before, and and you know players like that. James as the reason why. Salford will go to that next level. And finally, Declan Patton, half a uh, half, used to play for Warrington, had sort of a mixed uh, bag at Warrington, it was in and out of that side. But he's come to Salford. Salford give him a chance, and that's what Salford is. Salford is an opportunity club, and they've given Declan Patton that opportunity to come and shine, especially with this World Cup coming up uh, at the end of the year. Declan Patton's going to be ready uh, to, to play in that World Cup if he has a
1: good year at Salford. Absolutely very interesting stuff. But Rob, do you think the players have coped with the transition between Ian Watson and Richard Marshall? I think, I think they have, James. I think a lot of people were upset when, when Ian Watson departed and
0: you know, we wondered what was going to happen. Obviously we've had some you know, last couple of years been really good with that Chinese Cup and, and the grand final appearance and you know a lot of people were worried about what was gonna happen. But obviously Richard Marshall's come in. He's got that same ideas that Ian Watson has. And when he did come into the club, James, he said he he was happy with the foundations that were in place. He just wanted to tweak it a bit and, and take us to that next level. And I think, you know, Considering the friendly against Wigan last week, the intensity levels were much higher than, than they the usually are. For me, the defence was much better. Players really seemed energised and enthused. And, that, and that's what you know excites you about this season because the players have, have built on that experience of going to a uh, to a final. And with Richard Marshall changing a few things and, and mixing it up a little bit, these players have reacted. And, and that's what us fans want to, want to see. They want to see that reaction and hopefully then they can go to that next level and this time they can go and win. Yeah, it's not long till the season starts now, Rob. Are you excited for it? Oh super. It's, it's it's always rugby league, it's always a sport that excites everybody and you know we we turn up this time of year, every year, looking forward to what's to come. The challenges ahead, um we we're we're not fortune tellers. We don't know what's going to happen, but what we do know is going to be, you know, it's exciting time. You know, it's going to be ups and it's going to be downs. It's going to be drama, and that's what rugby league is, and that's why you know you're reaching out to to new fans all the time. And and if they get a hook, James, uh, you get you become a fan for life. And with Soulfire Devils, what a great club! You know, fam- family, family. Um, you know. People want to get involved. Uh, the city, you know, started to get behind them, you know, in the community, you know, with the Salford Devils Foundation, you know, reaching out to these these people and, and wanting to to help them become part of the club. And, and now with Richard Marshall and these players that are coming in, James, they, they've got some good players as well. And we've we've got experience in these big finals now, which has always been the problem with Salford. They've never been able to, to break into that top sort of three and four. But now, after the last couple of years of success... We don't know. I think we're able to make that next step now, and I'm you know, super excited by it.
1: Yeah, I think all Salford Red Devils fans are looking forward to seeing just how this seasons go, and I think plenty of them will be very optimistic for a good finish. But Swinton Lions were in Challenge Cup action against Newcastle on Sunday. Can you tell me a bit about that, Rob? Yeah.
0: Challenge Cup, fantastic tournament for Rugby League. Everyone gets excited. Uh, our local club, Swinton Lions, were involved in the first round of that. They beat Newcastle 28 points to 16 at Haywood Road. Uh, Jerome Doyle, Jack Hanson, two tries from Mick uh, Mike Butt and one from Rodri Lloyd helped the Lions get through to the next round. And, and that's the that's the good thing about, about Stuart Littler's men. They work hard for each other. Swinton Lions. Great club, great history, and you, you are excited about what's to come. Swinton fans, I, if you're listening to this, I urge you to get down to Haywood Road. This team is full of full of players who will want to work hard, and if if you're a fan of this great club, you want to get down there and watch them. and And we're hoping this uh, this win against Newcastle is just the beginning.
1: Yeah, we're all looking forward to next season. But moving now over to ice hockey, and Manchester Storm have signed a real fan's favourite for the Elite League. Rob, are fans going to be excited to see him back at the stadium?
0: Oh, yeah. Scott Simmons um, has, has re-signed for the Manchester Storm. He's, he's a forward He's Canadian. He played it for Storm. Last season he played 60 games, scored 15 goals and 13 assists, James. You know, and and that's what you think I think Storm need Storm need to be able to 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 test teams and and score goals. Uh, last season obviously when when we were watching him, they, they lacked that that killer instinct in front of goal. Scott Simmons, you know, he isn't the finished article for me, but he knows where the goal is, and that's the important thing moving forward. I, I still think Storm will need more firepower to, to challenge, but it's a step in the right direction.
1: Absolutely, is. I mean, Manchester some are certainly looking to do well this season, and they've also signed a top British player to bolster their ranks. Tell us a bit about him, Rob. Yep, uh, Joseph Hazeldean, uh, British defender, James. Which
0: is which is a thing in ice hockey because a lot of Canadians and lots of uh, sort of Americans, uh, but this. British player is very very good. Um, he's looking at uh, becoming sort of an elite player, and he, he's been playing for Nottingham uh, this season, uh, last season, sorry. And, he, and he's looking at going into the uh, the British um, elite league with the Manchester Storm to get an opportunity and, and start to play well. And, and that's what we want. We, we want these players who who are British to get an opportunity to play in the elite league, and and hopefully, you know, get that get that ability to play and then that's only going to help Manchester Storm and then it's all going to help the Great Britain national team as well. Um, He played 55 games for Nottingham and and that's the kind of thing that that these Storm fans want. They want players who who can play and I I think they're going to be super excited about this kid uh,
1: coming forward. Well, I'm certainly excited, Rob, just to see what he can do this upcoming season. But the government have done a lot to help ice hockey throughout the pandemic. What exactly have they done, Rob?
0: yeah obviously we we know what's going on uh, with with the pandemic um you know the helping all all the sports aren't they uh, and they've, they've... They managed to help the uh, the national ice hockey they've given them two point seven million pounds um to to help fund the, the the clubs um which which is great because obviously without the fans in the ground they, they've had a problem aren't they trying to get um you know funding and and a lot of uh, ice hockey clubs you know were worried, weren't they that they might go to the wall uh, but but they haven't that hasn't happened james and, and the. Oh, because they've been given that that kind of uh, support, which is which is which is really good, and you know we're hoping that you know this support can continue uh, the Great British National uh, Hockey Team are in the World Championship at the end of the year. So that's going to be a you know exciting thing uh, to look forward to, because um, obviously you know we want to be competing in the in the top the top of the of the you know the World Cup and the World Championships to come. So to be able to, be able to fund them
1: uh, is only be a good thing moving forward. Rob, can you enlighten me on what Storm and other ice hockey teams have done to raise funds during the pandemic? Yeah, you
0: know, ice hockey is, is a very expensive sport and obviously these players um you know generate generate a lot of lot of money but also they, they do require a lot of sponsorship. So they they from what I've been obviously looking at you can, you can sponsor different, uh, things that they wear. So you can sponsor helmets, you can sponsor skates, you can sponsor the stick, they can sponsor the shorts, you can sponsor the elbow pads, you can sponsor the leg pads, and you can sponsor the body armor. And I don't, I don't think there's any sport in the world, James, that you can actually sponsor certain sort of, um, you know, armour which he, which and, and kit which he use i think it's fantastic generates income for for, for the, the, the the club and the players so i think if you sponsor a certain uh, object that they that they wear you get to keep it at the end of the season which is great as well so i, I think it's it's fantastic that you know Manchester Storm and, and other ice hockey um, teams that have, have managed to to get round the the problem with the pandemic and sponsor uh, players and, and their equipment it's it's only a good thing it's a very inventive concept, Rob. What would you sponsor? Oh, well, looking at it, I'd, I'd like to sponsor the uh, the stick and the helmet. So I think with with uh, with ice hockey, there's lots of pictures of them wearing helmets, in there? Because it's it's quite a, a tough sport. So if I was going to sponsor it on behalf of uh, the sports Zone on Talkover Radio, I'd have it bang in front of that uh, that big um, shield on the face.
1: Fair enough, that's a very interesting one to go for. And that's all we've got in terms of ice hockey for this week's row. I'm going to throw back to you, Rob, to hit me with some boxing questions. Yep, boxing. Uh, the news has officially broke, James, that the biggest fight in
0: British heavyweight history has been signed. Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fiore is a done
1: deal. It absolutely is, Rob. It feels like we've been talking about this one for years. Tyson Fury versus Anthony Joshua. The biggest fight in British boxing history. The contracts have officially been signed and now we're all awaiting a site and date. That's all that's left to go. We don't know if it's going to be in England, if it's going to be in America, if it's going to be in the Middle East. Many continents and places putting the hats in the ring. For this one, and we're so excited to see where it's going to go. Personally, I think we're going to end up in Saudi Arabia. I think that's where the money is. But regardless of where this fight takes place from, I think everybody in the country will be eagerly glued to their seats for this one. Tyson Fury, the slickster, Anthony Joshua, the massive puncher. In recent in the media, Tyson Fury's been playing down the fight, saying it might not happen. But I think all along, he's known it will. I think this has just been mind games from the Gypsy King all along. This fight was set in stone. It was written in the stars. It's the biggest one I think we'll ever see in the history of British boxing and we'll be back on the Sports Zone to let you know the site as soon as we know it.
0: There's an absolutely monstrous heavyweight fight on
1: Saturday night as Dylan White competes in his big rematch. There is. It's the brawl on the rock, isn't it, in Gibraltar as Dillian White takes on a rematch with Alexander Povetkin. Now, White was extremely close for fighting for a world title. Just one fight away, he was competing for the WBC interim world title against Povetkin last time out. And he seemed to coast his way through. He had the Russian drop twice and it seemed to all be smooth sailing. Then suddenly he was hit with an uppercut out of nowhere, which switched his lights off and threw his career back. You know, several months, it was an absolutely shattering knockout from the Russian. And we go into this rematch not knowing what's going to happen. Is Dylan White going to be apprehensive going into this one? Will his confidence remain? It's difficult. I mean, Dylan White obviously had Povetkin down twice early, so he knows he can do that. He knows he has the power to hurt the Russian, and he knows he can probably knock him out. However, he also knows that if he makes one mistake at any point during the fight, his lights can be switched off himself. So it's a really intriguing rematch, Rob. Who do I think is going to win? I'll edge towards Dillian White. He's the younger, fresher man. And it wasn't a mistake that led to the knockout. It was a technically well-executed shot by Povetkin. However, I think if Dylan White stays a little bit more cautious, if he doesn't search for the knockout, if he boxes on the back foot, I think Povetkin's 41 low legs will eventually give out on him. And I see White finding a way to get the victory. Is his career old he can't win this one? Difficult to say. Dillian White's the kind of guy who'll always keep trying, the sort of man who'll never give up. And he's come back from horrific knockouts in the past, hasn't he? I mean, Anthony Joshua switched his lights off, so he's done it before. However, every time you take one of these knockouts, his chin starts to deteriorate a little bit more. And Dillian White is somebody who's renowned to be able to go through wars, to be able to put himself through the fire and emerge from the other side. And he's gone down several times in his last few fights. How many miles has he got left in the tank? I mean, he's not the oldest of heavyweights, but that's not always the issue. Sometimes it's the amount of damage you've taken. And Dylan White has taken a lot of damage throughout his career. Probably more so than Alexander Povek has taken, even though, you know, the Russian's about 10 years older. I feel if he loses this one, he's a long, long, long way from getting a world title fight. If he wins, he's right back in the act. He's got that WBC interim belt. There's fights out there with the likes of Deontay Raudet. And then, you know, he's maybe just one fight away from getting another shot at Anthony Joshua or taking on a Tyson Fury. So if he wins, he'll be fine. If he loses, however, he's so far down that pecking order. And I don't think Dylan White's the sort of guy who's going to be wanting to fight at, you know, European level, British level. So his career at the highest level could well be over if he doesn't get a victory. Alexander Povetkin. On the other hand, I think he may well retire whatever the result of this bout is because he's not going to win another world title. I don't think at this age he can compete with the likes of Tyson Fury. And he was beaten a couple of fights ago by Anthony Joshua. So I think no matter what, he retires after this one. Whether it's, you know, a fantastic way and he rides off into the sunset with another big win over Dillian White, or he just retires like so many greats do on the back of a knockout defeat, we don't know. I'll edge towards Dillian White, but it wouldn't shock me if the Russian lands another massive punch.
0: A British hope
1: takes on a former title contender. Uh, Tell us about that. The new Fabio Wardley is in action against Eric Molina. And a lot of British fans are putting a lot of hope on Wardley, a potential world title contender, at least at European level. He's taken on Eric Molina. He's fought for world titles before on two occasions, once against Deontay Wilder and once against Anthony Joshua. He actually rocked. The bronze bomber in their fight. He pushed Deontay Wilder quite close. Obviously, Wilder eventually got the knockout win. In his second world title fight against Anthony Joshua, he was beaten quite comprehensively in just a few rounds. This was, of course, before Joshua fought Vladimir Klitschko. For me, Melina's in the back end of his career. I think it's one war they can win. It's a great name to get in your reper, but I don't think war uh, I don't think Molina's what he used to be. I don't think he's the greatest contender. Even in his prime, I didn't think he was quite at world level. So I see Wardley getting the job done and I see him emerging victorious and looking for new conquests, maybe at British and European level. I don't think uh, Molina will be too much of a problem. There's also an ex-Olympian taking on a Brit who's uh, daring to be a great. There is Nick Webb is back in action and he's just coming off winning the golden contract, isn't he? I mean, a great win in Ultimate Box who won three fights there off the back of his losses to Dave Allen and Camel Sokolowski. He's building back. He's had a tough time, Nick Webb. He was fancied to do a bit in the sport. After beating several journeymen, he stepped up and he wasn't quite at that British level. However, you know, after this ultimate boxer win, he's got a lot of momentum behind him. He'll be very excited to go into this one. Is it when he can win? Potentially. His opponent, Eric Pfeiffer, is a former Olympian. And some people remember he was meant to take on Daniel Dubois right before... Bois fought Joe Joyce. Unfortunately, Pfeiffer tested positive for COVID and the protocols weren't working well, so he had to pull out of that one. And many people considered him, you know, to be a potential banana skin for the dangerous fighter that is Daniel Dubois. And I'm going to make a daring prediction here. As much as Nick Webb is the promoter's favourite, as much as he's the British hope, I think Eric Pfeiffer might be a little bit too good for him. Nick Webb doesn't have much amateur experience. Eric Pfeiffer has fought in the Olympics, and although he's only had seven professional fights compared to Nick Webb's 16 or so, I still think Fife has too many skills on paper and I think he gets the job done. Ricky Hatton's son makes his debut on the card. Can he capture the public's
0: imaginations like his dad did?
1: Well, potentially. I mean, we all remember the cries of there's only one Ricky Hatton, don't we? He electrified Manchester and indeed British audiences for a very long period of time. One of the most prolific fighters we've ever had and potentially the most popular we've ever had fighting the likes of... Costa Zoo and Paulie Malignaggi and, of course, Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao. He's somebody who, who will forever go down as one of the great British fighters. So that puts a lot of pressure on his son, Campbell. He's bearing the name of his father, and people will be expecting a lot of him. Most prospects in the first fights, those who haven't fought in the Olympics, tend to you know, go under the radar. They get to fight on small horse shows. They edge into the big game. Campbell's going to have to deal with the pressure right from that first word go. So that could either go one of two ways. Either he'll develop the skills to be able to cope with that. When he gets into big fights, he'll be used to fighting on this big show and it won't matter as much to him and it will give him an advantage. Or he might struggle with the pressure because there's going to be a lot on him. So it's going to be interesting to see. And we just don't know how that's going to work out until Campbell Hatton takes to the ring on Saturday night. For me, if he's anything like his dad, I'm sure he'll be able to cope with it.
0: Britain crowned a new Cruiserweight World Champion on Saturday night.
1: How big a star can he be? Lawrence Acoli can be a big star. I think in the early stages of his career, he was a bit boring. He used to hold a lot. He didn't have the most exciting fights. But now he's working with Shea McGuigan, who, in my opinion, is an absolutely fantastic host. And he's punching extremely hard. And let's face it, the man is the only Olympian from 2016, that British crop, to become a world champion. And I thought he was the only one that caught. If you watch these other Olympians, they've all got hype, haven't they? I mean, you've got the likes of, you know, your Josh Kellys and your Anthony Fowles. But they've been beat. Lawrence Ciccoli might not have the prettiest style to watch on paper, but he gets the job done. He's knocking people out for fun. And at the moment, he doesn't look like there's that many people who are going to beat him. He came a world champion with absolute ease. Is Christoph Glavacki the hardest opponent to beat for a world title? In my opinion, no. Okay, he's held a belt before in his own past, but that was years ago, and he's coming off a few losses. In his last fight, he was knocked out cold by Maris Bradis, albeit that was a controversial fight after Bradis landed a couple of illegal elbows. But for me, he was well past his best. But I won't put anything against Lawrence Sikoli. He still had to get the job done against the man who was in front of him, and he managed to get a knockout inside the sixth round with very little experience. He's not had much much time fighting against the best in the world, but he was still able to get the job done. Who does he fight next, is the question. He's a world champion, so he can't continue to take it easy. He's got to step in with the best in the world now, and he's already shown that he's quite happy to do that in his competition so far. You know, he rushed through to British level, rushed through to European level, fight, fought for a year, a world title quite quick in his career, so he's obviously quite happy to go into this big fight. So there's only two men for him. There's Alungu macabi the African. A lot of people remember him. Challenger for Tony Bellew. They fought for the WBC Cruiserweight Championship a few years ago. Maccabu actually had Bellew down before getting knocked out himself in the third round at Gunnison Park. But that was a long time ago. macabu has got a lot better since then. He's put a few victories together back to back. He's very, very deserving of his own world title. Can I call he win that potentially? I think it's a very winnable fight, but Maccabu hits very hard in his own rat. Right, and it's definitely a unification I'd like to see. After that, you've got the other cruiserweight champion in the division. That's Maris Bradis, and for me, he's a much tougher conquest. Bradis is a new unified champion; he's got two belts, the WBA and the IBF, and in addition, he's coming off a win in the World Boxing Super Series, where you have to beat the best cruiserweights in the in the world. I mean, this is no easy task. I mean, it's undisputably. Hard to disagree with the fact that Bredis is the best fighter in the world right now within that division. And let's face it, he pushed Alexander Usyk very close. So I think Bradis goes in the favourite against Akole. However, if Akole wants to dare to be great and he wants to pick up two world title belts, he has a chance. He's got that one-shot knockout power. So why not give it a whirl? I think Akole versus Bradis or Akole versus McCabe are massive fights for the future. Matchroom have announced a big pay-per-view card in May. Should it be on pay-per-view though? It's a difficult one, Rob, isn't it? I mean, Derek Chisora versus Joseph Parker is a great heavyweight fight. They've both got big names in the UK. Chisora has been a fan's favourite for such a long period of time. Joseph Parker, in his own right, a former world champion, has beaten the likes of Huey Fury, Andy Ruiz, Colas Takam. I mean, we've seen him over here taking on Anthony Joshua and Dylan White. And of course, he's coming off a big win himself against Junior Far, albeit a little bit controversial. So it's a great matchup on paper. However... For me, these aren't men who should be uh, headlining pay-per-views in the UK. Chisora is coming off a loss, and I think he's had ten of them in his career now. And that's not me to say, you know, I like the fact that fighters risk the fact that, you know, in this, in you know, in the UFC, fighters are allowed to lose fights and come back and still headline main events. But Chisora just keeps losing that highest level. He's not one of the world's best fighters. He's never going to win a world title. And as exciting as he is, he's not somebody. Who should be headlining bills, especially when he's well headlining bills potentially, but not headlining pay-per-view bills. I mean, who wants to depart of fifteen, twenty quid to watch two people who aren't at world level? I mean, you can argue Parker is potentially, but himself he's not looked great as of late, and I don't think he's put a good performance in since about two thousand and sixteen against Andy Ruiz. So for me, it's a good fight. It's not a pay-per-view fight. There's a big women's fight as the co-main event. Tells about Jack. Tells about that. There is Katie Taylor, probably the most famous woman in boxing right now, an undisputed world champion and a two-weight world champion. She's taken on Natasha Jonas. And from the moment these two women turned professional, it was destined that they'd fight. Of course, she had a a battle in the Olympic and ended up winning a medal for Ireland at those Olympic Games. And Miss GB, Natasha Jonas, has been desperate to get that fight back for a very long period of time. And finally, she has the opportunity to do just that. Jonas is coming off a very controversial world title fight in which she should have got the victory against Terry Harper. And Katie Taylor, you know, is coming off a victory in her own right. But before that, she's coming off a fight in which most people felt she lost against Delphine Pursun, the Belgian police officer, who a lot of people thought beat her twice. Despite that, I still think Katie Taylor goes into this one the favourite. I think her hands are going to be a little bit too quick on the night. But I won't write off Miss GB. I think she's a great competitor. But as I say, Katie Taylor, I think, gets the job done. Chris Eubank will be back in action on this card. He most certainly will be. Chris Eubank Jr., one of the biggest stars in the UK. Of course, everybody remembers his dad, whether that'll be boxing fans or reality TV fans who remember Chris Eubank's stint on I'm a Celebrity when he befriended Lady Colin Campbell and Kieran Dyer. He was a great fighter. Chris Eubank Jr. hasn't quite reached the heights that his dad did. His dad, of course, a multiple-time world champion, Chris Eubank Jr., hasn't quite won that yet, but he still believes he can He's a very quick fighter, has rapid hands, has decent punching power. He's teamed up with Roy Jones Jr., one of the greatest fighters who's ever lived. And he's working on his game very much. He was always renowned as a fighter who didn't take training very seriously and always thought he knew best. Now he seems to be doing everything right. So if he's going to win a world title, I think this is his window. I think his next world title fight will be his best opportunity to win one. However, I'm not overly impressed with the opponent choice, and I don't want to be horrible to Marcus Morrison, who'll be taking on Chris Eubank Jr., but, you know, the man's lost at a much lower level. He's lost to Journeyman. He's lost on a matchroom car before to Jason Wellburn, who's sort of European level. I don't think he's somebody who's capable of beating Chris Eubank Jr. And when Eubank Jr. fights at this level, he disposes of opponents very quickly, and unfortunately, I think Marcus Morrison, although... Albeit a local lad, I think he'll be, unfortunately, on the end of the same fate. There's another world title title fight as a Brit challenges a Russian. Tell us about that. There is Craig Richards, the spider, will be taking on Dmitry Bivel for the WBA Championship of the World. And I don't want to be horrible. And I don't want to be a pessimist, but unfortunately I'm going to be. Of course, we're all rooting for Richards. We all want to see him win a world title. Who doesn't want to see a Brit win a world title? But unfortunately, I think Dimitri Bivel is levels and levels and levels above him. He's a real world-class champion, somebody who did tremendously well in the amateur game, a great Russian Eastern European fighter. And I think on the night, we're just going to show, we're just going to see too many levels difference between these two men. Craig Richards, for me, is a British-level fighter. He's not a world-level fighter. And that's exactly what Dimitri Bivel is. I think he'll be far too good for him. I think he'll pop the jab in Richard's face. And I see him getting a knockout victory inside five or six rounds. I mean, in the past, Bivol has coasted to victories and he's won on points. But when there's the likes of, you know, Arthur betta out there and Joe Smith Jr., you know, proper world champions, getting the victories done with crushing knockouts. I think it puts pressure on Dimitri Bivol to act like them, to up his stock power. And I think he gets a knockout on the night. Final boxing question, James. A new boxing video game has made the headlines. Tell us about that. Here he is. ESBC boxing game is going to be released, hopefully, this year. And I think a lot of fans are very excited for this one. It's been a long time since the world has seen a boxing video game. I think EA Sports Fight Night was the last one in about 2010. And David Hay was on the front cover of that one, which tells you just how old the game is. I mean, the graphics are looking good. The gameplay is looking good. They've got a fantastic roster featuring legends like Ricky Hatton, Juan Manuel Marquez, Sugar Ray Robinson, Jack Dempsey. There's a lot of them, and I mean, there's a lot of modern fighters as well. Roman Chocolatito, Gonzalez, Juan Estrada, Terence Crawford, Amir Khan. There's a lot to look forward to, and all boxing fans who are into the gaming should purchase this one ASAP because I think it'll be a great game.
0: I think obviously with, with boxing video games, I think it probably comes down to the sort of the graphics and the and the way the the sort of players move. Do you, do you think they'll kind of uh, use boxers to to help? sort of help that process
1: along? 100%. I mean, I know they're scanning fighters. I know they're studying the movements. They want to get it as realistic as possible. You want to get the punch selection correct. What The last thing they want is to create a game where there's a load of fighters all doing the exact same thing. They want to make the experience for the gamer as interesting, as realistic, and as authentic as possible. So all the fighters on the roster will be fighting in their own unique way. The graphics are going to look good, and I think it'll be a real treat for fight fans, Rob. Yep, yeah, it's going to be exciting. Do we know what, what consoles are going to be on? I think it's going to be on PS4, it's going to be on Xbox, Rob. And I know you're a king gamer, I'm sure you'll be purchasing a copy of this and maybe even posting some YouTube videos of your gameplay. <laughs> all over it, James, all over it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that's all, uh, all the uh, the boxing chat. Um, now we'll talk USC and USC 260. 260- takes place on Saturday night as the greatest heavyweight of all time
1: collides with the hardest hitter of all time. It's a massive rematch, James. It's a massive rematch, Rob. I mean, the fight sells itself. As you just said, the greatest heavyweight who has ever lived in Stipe Miocic and the most powerful puncher in Francis Ngarni. And Statistically, the power in Francis Ngarno's hand is actually the equivalent of being hit by a Nissan car. So that's how big a puncher Francis Ngannou is. Absolute thunderous. He knocks people out left, right and centre. It's not even fully connected blows that knock people unconscious. All Francis Ngannou needs to do is glance that chin and your lights are switched on. Intriguing rematch here. Last time out... The fight was extremely interesting. Ngannou looked dangerous at the start. However, Stipe Miocic, they don't call him the greatest for no reason. And as powerful as Ngannou is, Miocic was able to wrestle his way, use his IQ, use the fact that he's been in there more, use his experience, use the fact that he's just a genius in the octagon to wrestle his way to a victory, to grind Ngannou out and to neutralise that power. However... It's two years since that last fight, and Garner's had a lot of time to improve. And Steve Miocic, in the nicest possible way, has got a little bit older. He's in his late 30s now. He's approaching 40. And how long can you go on for? Of course, it's known in the heavyweight division, the body carries on a little bit longer. It's not like these two men are banting weights. So I don't want to say Steve Pemiocich is too far past his prime, but he's been in a lot of wars, hasn't he? The first one against Ngarni, the the fight against Alistair Overeem, Stefan Struve, the the three fights against Daniel Cormier. He's really been through the ring And of course, that gives him additional experience. He's seen absolutely everything there is to see in the sport of mixed martial arts. But he's taking punishment. It's only going to take one shot from Francis Ngarni. Can you ever bet against Stipe Mielcic, a man who's proven time and time again that there's never been a harder man on the planet than him? You can't. But for every single second of the fight, fans will be on the edge of their seat because it only takes one from Francis Ngarni. And it's just a case of whether he lands it or not. Why is the champion considered the greatest of all time? Steve Pemiocic is the greatest of all time, Rob, because he's got more consecutive title defences than anybody in terms of world championship fights. Nobody has done what he has done. I mean... If you look at the history of the heavyweight division within the UFC, fighters only tend to defend that belt once or twice. Steve did it four times, which is unheard of. And he's done it in the greatest era of heavyweight fighters. He's beaten the likes of you know Junior De Santos, Alistair Overy, Daniel Cormier. He's beaten absolutely everybody there's been to be in this sport, including Francis Ngannou. And in that fight, everybody thought Ngannou was going to knock him out. And interestingly enough, despite the fact the first fight was one-sided, Stipio is winning every single round on the cards, Ngannou's got into this one again as the bookies' favourite, which is interesting. I mean, I suppose the bookmaker is just banking on Ingarni's power to land. But Steve Miocic is a man who keeps finding a way to win. He'll either wrestle his way through, he'll box his way through. And as powerful as Ingarno is, he's not necessarily the better boxer. In this contest, Steve Amiocic is a Golden Gloves level fighter. Of course, he won that tournament in his boxing days before he transitioned into wrestling and mixed martial arts. He's done everything there is to do in his career, he's beaten everyone, and he's come out of adversity in every situation he's ever been in. That's why he's considered the greatest of all time. I don't think there's anybody who's ever lived who's been better than Steve Amiocic. Has the challenger improved since his first fight? It's difficult to tell whether Francis Garni's improved since the last fight, Rob. I mean, it was pretty clear to see that not only was there a difference in terms of technical boxing, there was a humongous difference in terms of the wrestling. Stipe Omic was an NCAA champion in college wrestling. He was able to dismantle Garni. He was able to take him down at will. I mean, most of the rounds took place on the floor because Miocic would avoid that monstrous power, taking Ngarni down and battering him very easily, which drained the energy out of Ngarnou. And by the fourth and fifth round, although the power was still there to an extent, it wasn't really power that was going to knock Miocic out. Ingarnu since then, has won most of his fights. I think he's won five out of six. He's looked extremely good, and five of them have been back-to-back. However, all he's done is knock people out in about 30, 40 seconds, which is exactly what he did in the build-up to the Miocic fight. So all this hype builds up behind him that is looking unbeatable once again. But really, we're not going in with any difference. We've not seen if has improved his boxing game, really, because he's knocking people out so quickly. And we've not seen that he's improved his wrestling game because he hasn't had to use his takedown defence at all. So it's more than conceivable that Steve Permiochic just does exactly the same thing to him. However, he's been working hard with Kamari Usman, who's the UFC welterweight world champion, is a fantastic wrestler in his own right. So maybe he's learnt a thing or two off him. And I just assume within two years of practice, he will have got better. But to catch up to Steve Miocic is no easy task. He's a fantastic wrestler, and he could very well win this fight very easily, which is why it's an intriguing battle, Rob. Because Steve Miocic, on paper, glides his way through to a victory. He outboxes Ingunu. He takes Ingunu down. He's better on the floor. He's an all-round better fighter. However, Francis Ingunu could knock Steve Miocic out within one shot. That's why this one's so interesting. And it's why you'll be on the edge of your seat for every single round of the fight. If Miocic wins the first four rounds, that's fine. Because in the fifth, Ngarni can still land that knockout blow. That's why this one's exciting.
0: A lot has been made of the challenger's power, but what
1: about the champions? This is the interesting thing, isn't it, Rob? Everybody talks about Francis Ngarni being the biggest puncher in UFC history. He hits as hard as a car hitting somebody else. That's statistically proven. However, Stipe Miocic has knocked a lot of people out in his own right. He's put plenty of people to sleep, and he's put plenty of people to sleep at the highest level of the sport. He isn't somebody who was just knocking people out on the way up to the title. He was defending it and winning with crushing knockout blows. He won the world title in Brazil inside the opening round with a massive right hand whilst rotating backwards, and anybody who's boxed before knows how hard it is to develop power on the back foot. Miocic is a huge puncher in his own right, And Ngannou can't go in willy-nilly, throwing shots, expecting Stupia Miochic not to be able to hurt him. The champion of the world can hurt Ngannou as well. Josh Jones is set to take on the winner. Is that something that's going to excite you? More than most definitely, Rob. I think that's an intriguing contest. John Jones, considered the most naturally talented fighter to have ever stepped foot in the octagon. Of course, he's had... His issues in his own right outside the cage, whether it be with performance enhancing drugs or recreational drugs like cocaine. He's had controversy surrounding misdemeanors in the public eye. I mean, he's had DUIs. I mean, of course, he had the iconic case about five or six years ago when he did a hit and run on a pregnant woman and then returned to collect his wallet and his, uh, his recreational drugs. He's not necessarily the most like man within the field of combat sports, but he is considered one of the most talented And he's somebody who maybe skill for skill can beat a Steve Miocic. He's a massive man. He's more than capable of stepping up from light heavyweight. And that's a fantastic fight for me. Because you've got Miocic and Jones. You've got Miocic, the nice guy, the firefighter, a man who saves people's lives, a part-time paramedic, just a lovely all-round guy, one of the greatest heavyweights, if not the greatest he's ever lived. And John Jones, the baddie, somebody who's done so many things wrong, whether that be within the sport, or within just his own personal life, but somebody who everybody knows has so much talent. It's a great blending of styles. And then if Ingarni wins, you've got John Jones taking on the puzzle of the biggest puncher in the history of the sport. So you've got three men there, and Ngarni, Miocic, and Jones. You can do a round robin with the three of them, and there's no matchup that you wouldn't want to see. Whoever takes on who, it's going to be exciting. Final UFC question, James. The co-main event is cancelled due to COVID protocol. How disappointing is it? It is Rob, and it's a shame. Alexander Volkanovsky was set to defend his UFC heavyweight world title on the bill. Unfortunately, he's tested positive for COVID and will not be able to go ahead with this fight. And he'll—he was looking forward to a big performance here. A lot of people criticised the fight against Max Holloway. I personally thought it was very close, but unfortunately, he's going to be unable to do so. Brian take the challenger, he'll be devastated that he doesn't get his shot at the belt, but hopefully it can be rearranged very quick. It's one that all UFC fans are very much looking forward to, so I hope we see it later on in the summer.
0: Yeah, uh, let's talk football now, James, uh, and start with our local uh, club, Salford City FC, uh, suffering a bit of a uh, cup hangover after the uh, after the victory at Wembley uh, last week. They drew nil nil at home to Colchester uh, midweek, and then lost two nil to Cheltenham. Uh, frustrating draw um, midweek for the Amies. Um Disappointing, really.
1: Yeah, there's a, lo- a lot to unpack there, Rob. I mean. Salford, fantastic. They did well at Wembley. They won. And that's what every single fan dreams of. And every single player in his own right. They all dream of going to Wembley, lifting a trophy. And it's what they've done. You can't blame them for, you know, being happy about that and going out and celebrating and enjoying it and riding their own momentum. However, they've got to focus on the league now. And games with Colchester... It's a nil-nil draw, and that's not what you want to see by any stretch of the imagination. Salford are in ninth place. They're on the cusp of the playoffs, and they're just, you know, they're just a win or two away from being in that, potentially getting promoted to League One. But Colchester, who are 22nd in the league, you can't afford to drop points here. This isn't a case of one point gained. It's two points lost. Salford should have won this one, and I'm bitterly disappointed they haven't. And I know the home advantage isn't exactly what it should be in a global pandemic when you're playing a team like Colchester you still hope to get the job done and Salford should be bitterly disappointed in this one and I know that Cheltenham are top of the league but the fact that they lost that one is well off the back of this it means this game against Exeter is extremely important they're in 8th place Exeter Salford need to win this one, there's there's nothing separating them in the league, and if Salford want to end up in the playoffs, it is absolutely of pivotal importance that they win this game, they play the strongest side, they travel to Exeter, and they get a win, they forget the cup, that's done now, they've won it, it's over, focus back on the league, put all your attention in that, put all your desire in that, and get a win, because the performance against Colchester wasn't good enough for my liking.
0: Yeah, coach uh, Richie Wellens wasn't happy with the intense levels um, after the defeat um, at weekend against Cheltenham. And, and I suppose that's a, a thing that you have to think about. Obviously, they come down from, from the from the cup final. But that's no excuse moving forward. Like you said, James, it's it's all about cons- consolidating that, that league position because obviously they've had some success happening in the last few years. And, you know, if they keep winning and they keep getting in, in positions of, of,
1: you know, dangerous, uh, it it can make a big difference. 100%, and it's deeply upsetting, isn't it, Rob? I mean, nobody minds if Salford go out there, give it everything they've got and come up short. However, when you're being criticised for your lack of intensity, that's when you're not putting everything in. You're not giving everything you've got, and it's deeply disappointing because as fans, we want to see our football team give it everything. Every last bit of energy, every last blood of sweat and tears you give into those games especially against Cheltenham, who are top of the league. You want to make a statement against a team like that. So the fact that they weren't putting in as much work rate as they should, I'm disappointed. And it puts even more pressure on this game as Exeter because the Cheltenham result wasn't good enough. They lost and they need to get wins now. They need to put absolutely everything into that because the season hasn't got long left to go. And if they end up not qualifying for the players, cheers to the fact that they haven't given everything they've got then they deserve all the criticism in the world. If they come up short, having given every last bit of ounce of energy, then it's forgivable. But if they don't, then we can't help but criticise the players and the team. They need to get everything this weekend. This game's of monumental importance. And a win against Exeter could make the difference in this season. It's going to be exciting. We'll see see what happens uh, there, James. So... Let's talk Man City
0: now, James. Uh, Two wins for them over the week. Uh, A 2-0 victory against Borussia Munch and a 2-0 away win at Everton. So, uh,
1: good two wins for Pep's men. Yeah, good couple of wins, isn't it? I mean, you always want to get a big Champions League win and that's exactly what they've done. They've beaten Borussia Gladbach, and now they'll slowly but surely begin to believe that this is a tournament they can win. The Champions League is the only tournament that has evaded Manchester City. And it's the only tournament that has evaded Pep Guardiola during his time at Manchester City. And this is a manager who's done everything at every club he's been to. At Bayern Munich, he did it. At Barcelona, he did it. He can do it at Manchester City as well, and he could have done it in three separate leagues. That'll be absolutely massive in his career as a manager. And Rob, if he does do it, can Pep Guardiola stop claiming that he's the greatest manager of all time? Well, it's going to be interesting because obviously Man City are chasing, you know, the the
0: European Cup, and you know that's the one they haven't managed to win yet, and that's the one they're going to be judged on um, in in history when when we look back. Um, you, you're going to have to obviously put your put your hands up at one point to say that this Man City team. Uh, is one of the best uh, footballing teams uh, of our ge- of our generation. Um, they're on they're on the charge for a quadruple, James. Um, the first team to do that. I know Man United won a treble in '99, but t- to win a quadruple would be would be a massive achievement. Um, if you look at you know the teams left in in the competition, the, the you know the streets head of of the rest of the pack in in the league. Um, you know the, the FA Cup, uh, they are, they're the the standout team um, in that in that draw. Um, Champions League is the big test for him. So it will be interesting to see what, what Pep can do because obviously pressure will build the, the more the, the games come.
1: Yeah, it's becoming a scary prospect, isn't it, Rob? Because it looks like Manchester City actually might pull this off. And as a Manchester United fan, just like you are, it would be absolutely devastating if they do that. I may have to retire from watching football because I don't think i would ever be able to mentally return from the heartbreak. But the Champions League is the only one where you wonder, are they going to be able to do well it's gonna come down to well. it's
0: gonna come down to experience of that Man City team. are lots of good players in that side who have played at the very top level and in cup finals you know, at international level and domestically. So you, you, you're hoping, well, you, you're thinking that this city team might be might be on. I know they spent a lot of money putting this team together, uh, but they have bought genuine class. So you've got to think to yourself, this might be the year Man City finally get uh, to win it, win a Champions League. Talking about Man City, John Stones uh, has got his England recall. Um, great centre half for City. Uh, do you think he's worth a spot in that England team?
1: Yeah, he's a great player, isn't he, John Stones? I know a lot of people gave, you know, there was a lot of controversy surrounding him, but he's a great player and I'd happily, uh, I'd happily
0: have him back in the squad. Let's talk Man United now, James. Um, mixed week for Man United, midweek win against AC Milan, Paul Pogba uh, with the winner for Manchester United uh, to send him through to the next round against Granada.
1: Yeah, and I think is a very winnable fixture. I actually think our last 16... And for me, it could have been the hardest, hardest draw out of the entire competition. I really rate AC Milan as a side. And Granada, I think, is a team we should beat relatively easily. And I feel like Manchester United can expect to win this competition. I truly do. I mean, I know the likes of Arsenal are still in it, but they're not performing particularly great. Only going to show short shot is going to want to win a European trophy. Of course, many moons ago... In 1999, only going to show, Shaw put the nail in the coffin for Bayern Munich as Manchester United won the Champions League. And how great would it be if all these years on, he can do it as a manager as well? And I know it's the Europa League and not the Champions League, but I think people put a great deal of respect on his name. I mean, when he first joined Manchester United, when he was, you know, considered just a PE teacher or somebody that, you know, hadn't even done well at the likes of Cardiff. If you can prove all those people wrong and win a Europa League, I think... I think he'll be greatly happy with that. What do you think, Rob? I think I think it's going to be very interesting times.
0: We've, we've got a minute to go in, in the show. Um, the, the loss to Leicester in the FA Cup, opportunity missed there for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's men. Um, but I've said before that this team is, is a good team, but it is not a great team because there's, there's t- players in that team
1: who, who aren't good enough to be a Man United uh, player, but you've got to work with what you've got. You're absolutely going to work with what you've got, Robert. not Ultimately, it's a team sport and you're only as good as the weakest player in the starting eleven. So Manchester United, I think, over the next transfer window, will look to build that squad. But while we've just got a little bit of time left on the clock, Rob, I have to ask you. Well, it wasn't the greatest of performances, was it, by Manchester United? But unfortunately, there's only one man who everybody is focusing on right now, and that is, of course, Fred. And Fred, his performance today, he made a catastrophic error resulting in a Leicester goal. How did you feel about his performance? Oh, well, f- Fred, Fred is, is is a centre midfielder
0: who played for Man United and, um, yeah, he's, he's, he is a, a player that particularly I don't particularly rate but we'll have to wait and see uh, with with what happens in the next uh, few weeks and months to come. Big thanks for tuning in to this week's Zone. I've been Rob Parkinson and we'll see you next week for more Salford Sporting chat.